Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Amen. Father God, we look to your word this morning and pray that it would not just be an old letter, but it would be renewed in our minds by your Holy Spirit, quickened there, and that you would anoint my lips as I preach. Be glorified, I pray, in this portion of our worship. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know why it is, but after the Christmas festivities, there's always one or two comments about people feeling guilty about having broken their diets. And uh, others feel downright guilty anytime they're enjoying Krispy Kreme donuts or golfing or vacationing or at parties. And if you are a workaholic who is driven to activity continually and you feel uh, guilty when you relax, you may be shocked to know that God has in His Word in the Old Testament mandated not just a day of rest every week, which amounts to how many weeks in a year? 52 weeks, something like that. But He has also mandated another 30 rest days in the Old Testament. We're not bound by those uh, today. But uh, it shows to me how much God valued giving to His people rest. And some people might think, wow, 80 days That you're not working? What a royal waste of time. How in the world are we going to be able to stand it? You know, not being able to do anything on those days. And uh, just to add to that a little bit of something else, just imagine that you have to schedule every year between one and maybe two or three weddings, and they're week-long weddings, and you begin to realize just a little bit of how different the Hebrew culture is from the American culture in terms of work and relaxation of work and pleasure. And that brings up the issue of food as well. If you are driven by harsh diets that make you feel guilty for every calorie that you ingest and every fragrant, he said not him, every uh, fragrant aroma that you uh, smell and every pat of butter that you put onto your potatoes, then I would encourage you to do a little bit of study from Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23, which guarantees that the touch not, taste not, handle not kind of diets are not going to help you at all in terms of the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, if you read it, it says they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. No value. See, the problem is that such approaches treat the enemy not as being within, but the enemy as being outside. And so the enemy is the food and we've got to somehow change that food chemically so that we can take out the sugars and take out the fats and anything else that might make it sinfully tasty. And uh, the the scriptures indicate very clearly the enemy is not out there. Again, the scripture commands feasting, uh, feasting on the riches of food, not just on the Sabbath, but on uh, 30 other festivals as well. Uh, Just to put it into perspective, there was only one mandated uh, 
fast day on any given year. There were a lot of other times where you could fast if God called you to do that. But there was one mandated fast day. There were 80 mandated feast days. Okay, so what he's indicating, there is a place for self-denial. And God does call us to self-denial. But predominantly in the Scripture, he's calling us to have pleasure, to have delight in his good creation. And I think that is so significant. In an old Credenda Agenda magazine that I have, there was this comment. For some reason, foreign to our modern ears, God tells us that celebration is central to pleasing Him. It is central to leading a good life. Modern American life has no time for serious celebrations as did life in centuries past. We've got work to do. Projects and deadlines press us. And yet for all our industrial strength pragmatism, few if any truly important things get accomplished. We have forgotten that celebration isn't just an option. It's a call to full Christian living. And so I've uh, titled today's sermon, Enjoying Life to the Fullest. Now, it doesn't deny that God calls us to self-sacrifice. In fact, we're going to be seeing that self-sacrifice is, is one of the keys to really enjoying life. But it is to say, as uh, Rodney mentioned earlier, that God calls us not just to glorify God, but to enjoy Him forever. In fact, we're not fully glorifying God if we're not enjoying Him forever. Now, those of you who are already uh, ready to strangle me for bringing up Krispy Kreme donuts and uh, other issues like that, uh, you need to realize that there are biblical ways to lose weight. And I can share those with you at some time. Contrary to the teaching of Greek asceticism, the problem is not with the food. God did not make chocolate fudge taste so yummy just to torture you, right? Uh, God um, delights in delighting His people, but He wants us to delight in His good gifts by first and foremost delighting ourselves in the giver. Okay, That's the priority that we need to be having. And only then are we going to be able to have the balance to be able to abstain when we're supposed to be abstaining and to revel when we're supposed to revel. Now, this morning, I want to look at how to enjoy life without guilt. But also, I want to contrast that with why it is that people who overly indulged themselves like Solomon did really did not end up enjoying life very much. We want to trace God's delight in delighting us, but we also want to see how a failure to delight in the giver robs us of the ability to fully delight in his good gifts. They're really connected. And so let's begin, first of all, with an overview of this book. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I want to show you a contrast that you will find throughout this book. It's a real key to understanding this book. <clears throat> In verse 1 of chapter 3, he describes things that are under heaven. Okay, that's a very key phrase. In fact, throughout the book, I underline wherever it says under heaven. And then if you look a little bit further down at verse 16, there's a different phrase that is under the sun. Now, some people might think those are two synonyms, but they're actually antonyms. They're quite different. They're opposite ways of looking at life. Now, what is it to look at life as being under the sun? Well, if the physical sun is the highest reality in your life, there is nothing that transcends the sun, then this practical deism will lead to emptiness. And verses 18 through 20, if you just take a glance at that, 
uh, shows that it, it, uh, it leads to all kinds of emptiness. It leads to humans treating other humans as if they are just animals. And it makes sense. You know, it's what the evolutionists today do. They complain against uh, people shooting each other in schools. They complain of, uh, against, you know, the, uh, the violence and the sexual diseases and things like that. But why should they care if we're just animals? Animals do this all the time and they don't bicker about that. They want to bicker about uh, what we do today. Uh, verses 16 and following so show only emptiness. Now, contrast that with the phrase under heaven in verse 1. That is to continually live your life under something that transcends the sun. Okay, to live under heaven is to live under God's throne room. And verses one through eight says that there is meaning and there is purpose for absolutely everything that you do under heaven. Everything in the earth under heaven, even the painful things have meaning. They have purpose. Now, let's focus on verses 11 and following. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is a gift of God. Enjoying life is a gift of God, and that's one of the reasons why Solomon had such a hard time enjoying life. God's not going to give enjoyment to people who are in rebellion against him. It's a gift of God, the ability to enjoy life. Uh, you cannot fully enter into the enjoyment of a flower, a flower, a sunset, poetry, apart from God's gracious working in your lives. And if you don't enjoy poetry, you need to get with it, you know, but um, uh, you can't enjoy those. Everything, including sweeping the floor, can be done with joy if it's done as a service to God and a sense of the fact that you are under his approving countenance, his approving presence. Now, look at chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. When you truly receive food and drink from the loving hands of a personal God, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy the good in his labor. Now, that was said by a man who found vexation in his labor. Um, he failed to live his life under God, under heaven. And if you're living life uh, just under the sun, there's going to be vexation. You're going to be troubled even with the things that you were looking forward to doing. They're going to let you down. But if you're living all of life under heaven, then it's going to be entirely different. It does not matter what your circumstances may be, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. You can enjoy life and you need nothing better than what God has given to you. In chapter 9, he says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Basically, if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize God is not against pleasure. He is not against pleasure. He wants us to enjoy life in all of its facets, and he wants us to enjoy life all of our days. Chapter 11, verse 7 says, Truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. Even simple things like sunshine brought pleasure to his soul as he walked in fellowship with God. Now, that was not always true. 
Using the past tense, Solomon says he knew what boring was all, of, all, all about. His life for years was filled with vanity and emptiness. Now, you might think, how in the world could a person as busy as Solomon ever be bored? And yet he indicates that he was. He says, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. That's chapter 2, verse 17. When God was left out, he hated life, he hated his work, he even hated his fleeting pleasures. When keeping busy didn't help, in chapter 2, it says that he turned to entertainment, and that too left him cold and empty. You might think, well, surely it would be exciting to be as wise as Solomon was. He was the wisest of all men. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for in much wisdom is much grief. Solomon knew how empty sensual excitement could leave a person. Uh, you read through the book and you will see that Solomon tried absolutely everything that modern Americans have tried in order to gain enjoyment in life. And he says it basically left him empty. And so when you look at creamy, uh, Krispy Kreme donuts to uh, fill that emptiness, you're still going to be left with a spiritual emptiness inside. But when you find your satisfaction in God, then even when you don't have a refrigerator that is full, even when the donut stores are closed, uh, you're going to find rich satisfaction in what God has provided for you. And uh, when your heart is satisfied in God, then you have a heightened capacity to enjoy the good things of life. A heightened capacity to enjoy you know, the chocolate fudge sundaes and that thick, juicy steak. Uh, the Lord uh, gives us these things for our good and for our pleasure. And so those of you who are on miserable weight loss uh, programs, talk to me about the biblical ways of losing weight. Now, there are biblical ways in which we can have self-control without losing out on some of the pleasures of life. Now, let's look at the opposite extreme. Not uh, self-denial, but self-indulgence. At root, it has exactly the same problem. One of the pastoral journals that I had subscribed to, I was looking back through uh, 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 some of those, and it had an, uh, an illustration. It was just a parable. It's not a true story, but a parable of a truck driver who was driving through a large uh, city, and there was nothing remarkable about the truck driver or the truck that he was driving, except that every time he would stop at a stoplight, he would jump out of the cab with a baseball bat and start beating on the side of the truck. And after doing this at two or three uh, lights, somebody behind him stuck his head out the window and says, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? And the guy says, oh, I've got uh, four tons of canaries in this truck and I only have a one-ton truck, so I need to keep two tons in the air at all times. <laughs> Maybe you feel like you are carrying around an extra ton of canaries. And when things get a little bit too heavy for you to bear, like Solomon, you try to do some activity to stir up life, to make things feel a little bit better. Uh, for example, when you feel weighed down, you sit down at the television set and you veg out and that makes you feel better for a little while. Or maybe you get busy or you raid the refrigerator and you start stuffing your face with food. Okay, so it's not just Stoics and ascetics who miss out on real living. It's also the hedonists and the Epicureans. And if you're trying to cope with that extra load of um, canaries like Solomon was, then I think this passage at the end of Ecclesiastes has something to tell you. Now, that's all by way of introduction.
Let's uh, look at chapter 11 and verse 9. First thing we see here is actually repeated a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is that enjoyment doesn't just happen. Vanity does. Man, you can get vanity anytime you want. You don't even have to try. Vanity happens. But enjoyment of life has to be worked at. And uh, so if you're to learn to enjoy life, you need to realize this is a responsibility that I need to let rest squarely upon my shoulders. I have a responsibility to enjoy life. And you can see that in the fact that chapter 11, verse 9 starts with the command rejoice. Now, in my Bible, uh, that, that, that section is all one paragraph, verses 9 through chapter 12, verse 1. So this does not start by saying, beg God to make your life less miserable. Uh, He doesn't say, uh, pray to God that you'll be able to get married and then you'll be able to enjoy life or pray to God that you'll be able to get some children and then you'll be able to really start living or that you'll get a bigger salary. Uh, He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, pray to God that you'll get healed and then you can start to enjoy life because Ecclesiastes from start to finish assumes you're going to have pain. Maybe you'll have arthritis. You'll have other difficulties in life that you're going to be facing. And if you're having to wait until things begin to take place that are nice, he says you're going to miss out all the way through because there's always going to be something negative to look at. If God commands us to rejoice, that means he has given to us the grace to be able to rejoice. In other words, this is not a burden to bear. Oh, great. I've got one more thing I've got to do. I've got to rejoice. No, he is saying, I'm going to provide for you in a way where you can rejoice all of your days. And this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. You maybe can think of a condition in your life where you've got an excuse to be miserable. You've got an excuse not to rejoice, but you'll have to argue with Paul because he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And by my uh, computer program count, there are over 100 times in the Bible where we are commanded to rejoice before the Lord. God does not want our Christianity to be dull and our faces to be dour or sour. Uh, He wants us to rejoice. Secondly, Solomon says there's no need to wait until you're older before you can begin to really enjoy life. Now, that may seem a little strange to Americans because uh, we're always wanting to stay younger instead of grow older. But back then, they were dying to get older. Uh, They could hardly wait to get older because that's what they saw as being the ideal, being an elderly person who was in charge. And they might think, well, you know, when I can move out of home, I'll really begin to live. And once they're out of home, they think, if I could just get a farm and uh, be able to make my own living instead of having to work for other people, then I'll be able to really live. And once they get their farm, they're envious of those elders who have such influence in society and who are sitting in the gates and they think, man, if I could only be an elder, then I'll really begin to live. And Solomon is saying, you can't wait because if you've not learned the principles of how to enjoy life when you are younger, you're never going to learn them. Uh, over time, this is something that we do not, we should not uh, wait for. The last phrase of verse 10 says, for childhood and youth are vanity. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, he says, old age is vanity. Waiting is not going to solve anything. 
waiting does not get rid of vanity. You can be bored and empty as a youth and you can be bored and empty as an old man. And so chapter 11, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And so the key to enjoying life when you get old is learning to enjoy life right now. The key to enjoying life uh, with a donut in your hand is the same key to enjoying life, as I mentioned earlier, when the refrigerator is empty and uh, when the donut store is closed. The key is being focused on, enamored with, and totally satisfied in God, no matter what your circumstances may be. Uh, One of the greatest problems I think that Christians in America face is that they're constantly waiting for something to happen. Just waiting. Uh, Some are longing for the day when they'll be able to pay off their debts, maybe get a car, get a boat, something else that they've been dreaming about for a long time. Uh, It's one of the reasons why a lot of Americans are workaholics. Got to work, work, work so we can get the stuff, 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 you know, so that we can start to eventually begin to enjoy life. The truth is, as long as you seek happiness in that way, it will elude you. Even if you have everything that you've always wanted, it's still not going to be what you need. Here's what Jesus said. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Luke 12, verse 15. And so, I've said this before, and I am absolutely convinced of it. If you think you need even one more dollar in order to be satisfied, you're never going to be satisfied. You have to learn contentment in all situations. Now, that does not mean that you're going to be a doormat and passive. We're going to be looking at the difference between passivity and contentment. Contentment is a very active thing. As you're pursuing the Lord's uh, uh, commands to take dominion, uh, you still are satisfied with the providences that God throws into your life. Some people might think, you know, I'd really be happy if I could only have a child. But Mark 10 tells us that the irony of life is you're only going to enjoy your wife and your children and your house and your lands the most fully when you have given up those things to the Lord and no longer selfishly try to relate to them. In fact, you relate to all of those things as a stewardship trust and the Lord gives those same things back to you uh, when you are satisfied in Him. Now, verse 9 goes on to say that attitude and planning is key. He says, walk in the ways of your heart... And in the sight of your eyes, or as the margin says, as you see to be best. In other words, your words, your attitudes, your planning can make all the difference in the world. We can't just let life happen to us. And I think so many Christians do this. They're just passive. Things take dominion of them. They're not taking dominion of other things. Uh, We need to evaluate what is the best use of my time, my energies, uh, the resources that I have, and then begin making the plans to be able to accomplish those things. Let me just give you a a couple of examples. Too many people come home after a, a long, hard day at work and they've not planned what they're going to do when they come home. Uh, They don't know until they sit down on the sofa and they see the remote. They say, well, let's see what's on TV. And they start scanning through the channels. They don't know what's on the TV and they let whatever hits them hit them. It's a very passive approach to trying to enjoy life and it doesn't maximize life to its its utmost. There's nothing wrong with necessarily watching TV or programs, but 
The thing is, they need to be planned, he's saying. There's an inner attitude that makes a huge difference on how much we can enjoy a life. Uh, the same people will walk into the kitchen without thinking or planning what they will eat. They just graze whatever happens to, well, yeah, that looks good. And the other thing looks good. But there's no planning. There's no intentionality about what they are doing. This verse indicates that our heart should guide our eyes to the enjoyment of life. And as the margin indicates, we need to evaluate what is best. Attitudes and planning. Now, Solomon does not want to be misunderstood in saying that any impulses of our heart uh, or any plans or any things that we see to be right are, uh, are going to bring enjoyment. He says, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. It's when our heart and our plans conform to God's law that that enjoyment comes. Here's how Psalm 37 forwards it. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. See the order there? Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. When your heart's desires and plans are, have been aligned to God's Word, He says, yes, I will give. I'll pour out into your life abundantly and fulfill the desires of your heart. So that's the preface. Solomon says, look guys, you can enjoy life now. It doesn't matter how bad things are, you can start to enjoy life now. But what are the steps for enjoying life? And we're going to go through these fairly quickly. He says in verse 10, Therefore, remove sorrow or margin, remove vexation from your heart. And the Hebrew word for vexation there is basically resisting something that can't be resisted. Resisting something that cannot be resisted. And I think this is a major hindrance to enjoying life. We tend to get frustrated and angry and bitter and resentful over things we cannot change. You know, we fail to be able to roll with the punches. That's uh, the result of trying to play God's providence. God takes care of His providence, but we're constantly trying to take that back and put it on our shoulders. And it's not something that we're able uh, to lay hold of. As long as you're trying to do what God alone can do, like, for example, changing the heart of your spouse, as long as we try to do that, we're not going to enjoy our spouse fully. Some people get frustrated because they cannot change the humanism in our American system. And they get so outraged. and They get so frustrated and vexed in their heart. Uh, other people get vexed and bitter because they can't change the way their boss acts. And their boss is so irresponsible. And others get bitter from mistreatment. But let me tell you something. Even though other people can abuse you, and even though you cannot change sometimes the way other people think and the way they act, only you can let them control your spirit. Only you can let them make you bitter and angry and vexed uh, inside. And so refuse to allow your heart to be controlled by the evil that is out there. Solomon says, remove vexation from your heart. It's not going to do any good anyway. I don't know why it is we get vexed. In fact, one of the things I tell people when they are constantly frustrated, I say, let's just put some of these things down on paper. And as we go through these frustrations, let's put them into one of two columns. Left-hand column is your responsibilities. Right-hand column is God's responsibilities. 
And they'll start writing these things down. And the fascinating thing that I find is most of the things they're vexed over are things they can't do a thing about. In fact, they're not supposed to be doing anything about them. They're God's responsibilities. But those are the things we tend to get vexed over. And so Solomon said, get, get rid of that. You focus on your responsibilities. And, and interestingly, the same people that are vexed about you know, whoever's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're neglecting their responsibilities and they're focusing on something else. A second step is to pursue holiness. Chapter 11, verse 10 goes on to say, and put away evil from your flesh. Now, ironically, many Christians think exactly the opposite to this. They think just like unbelievers that God's law is designed to make us miserable. God's a killjoy and the only reason He's given these laws is so that we can be unhappy in life. And so... Once in a while, I've, just, I've got to be happy. I've got to do something that's enjoyable. And so I'm going to go ahead and sin. And God says, man, you don't realize that's exactly the direction that leads to lack of joy, lack of happiness. It's like a railroad uh, engine trying to get off of the railroad tracks so that it can be happy, so that it can be free, you know. Well, I tell you, that kind of freedom leads to bondage, getting mired in the mud. And God has made the railroad tracks of His law as a perfect designer for our being to give maximum freedom and power and speed in our lives. And when we neglect the law of God, it's not to our enjoyment, it's to our hurt. And so any view of grace that neglects this phrase here uh, really is going to be a view of grace that in the long haul will rob you of enjoyment, not enhance it. Be determined to pursue holiness. The next step is to remember that happiness is not dependent on physical vitality. It's really an adjustment of the way in which we think. It has nothing to do with our outward circumstances. And I think especially in America where we idolize youth, this is so important. He says, for childhood and prime of life are vanity. Now, the idea that youthfulness is essential to enjoying life is such a trap for Christians. And I have seen this over and over again where women begin to feel really badly about themselves when they get their bulges and, and wrinkles and varicose veins. And men feel badly when they're starting to get bald on their heads, right? And when they can't play basketball as vigorously as the others. And, uh, you know, I've even fallen into this, trying to keep up with the kids, you know, on sports and things like that. <clears throat> and we are so focused in our culture on physical vitality and beauty uh, that uh, I think enjoyment of life is lost when those things are lost. Solomon says, forget that. It is the inner man that is key to enjoying life. He then jumps from calling youth vanity to saying that age is vanity too when it is sought for fulfillment. Chapter 12, verses 2 through 7 is a marvelous piece of poetry. What it is, is a description of how the body begins to deteriorate through old age. It uses very poetic uh, terminology, but it's speaking about sight loss, hearing loss, taste loss, losing your teeth, losing your, uh, your strength. And his point again is that if you don't start enjoying life when you're young, it won't magically happen before old age. And if you don't at least start in old age to enjoy life, it's not going to happen before the silver cord is broken. And that's a poetic reference to uh, when you die. Chapter 11, 
uh, says, if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all. And I think that is God's purpose for your life, to enjoy God and to enjoy His good gifts all the days of your life. And then he ends with the repeated phrase in verse 6, which I think is key to the whole sermon. Remember now your Creator. In verse 1, he told the youth, this is chapter 12, verse 1, he told the youths to remember God now. In verse 6, he tells older people to remember God now. And it's when we live all of life before the face of God that life begins to take on meaning and we really begin to enjoy it. And so the simple principle is when we pursue happiness as an end in itself, it will elude us. It will elude us. When I was out in Ethiopia, I collected butterflies in first, second, third, and fourth grade. And um, when I first started collecting butterflies, man, I chased and chased after these things with the butterfly net. And I had such a hard time catching them till somebody showed me how to do it. And it was so easy. I didn't even have to run hardly. In fact, they would land on your shoulder uh, when you were still. And I think this is the way it is with happiness. When we pursue after happiness as being the end in itself, it eludes us. It's constantly flitting this way and that just beyond our reach, tantalizing us, but just beyond our reach. But when we pursue God as an end in himself, then God adds all of these things back to us instead of losing them. <clears throat> happiness is a byproduct not a goal. In Mark chapter 10, Christ said that it's only after we have given up everything that we have to God, our wives, our children, our lands, our houses, all of those things, that God gives those same things back 100-fold. We enjoy them 100 times more than we did before. And He says that when we put ourselves last, He puts us first. Now, Solomon, during a great deal of his life, was putting himself first. But Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What he was doing is he was selfishly trying to approach life. He was putting himself first and he constantly found himself coming up with the short end of the stick. He was being put last providentially by God because God doesn't approve. He destroys idols. That's his whole business is destroying idols and causing all glory to go to his name. And so, finally, he learned the lesson of putting God first and himself last. And God then says, good, you've learned how to enjoy life. I'm going to make you first. Let me just sum this up. Do never forget that God wants you to enjoy life. Satan is going to try to make you think God's a killjoy and he doesn't want you to enjoy life. But God wants you to enjoy life to the fullest. And the catechism question that uh, uh, Rodney began with earlier says it all. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. May we do so. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word that it is a light to our path. And many times we stumble when we fail to look at life through Your glasses. And I pray that we would put on the glasses of the biblical worldview and that we would more and more enter into this enjoyment that uh, You have uh, purchased as a heritage for your people through the blood of Jesus Christ. We bless you, Father. What an incredible thing it is to realize that uh, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And uh, he repeats that because it seems so unbelievable. And again, I say rejoice. Father, help us to take seriously your word to enjoy life to its fullest. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.